The reading of the scriptures from Romans chapter 15, reading verses 7 to 13, and uh, invite your uh, hearing of God's word uh, in faith. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the uncircumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, Therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again it is said, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, The root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. In him will the Gentiles hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Most of us, I am uh, quite sure, are deeply aware of the fact that there is incredible uh, disunity in our country. At least from my perspective. Um, And it's not just that there's disunity, there's disunity and diversity of how to fix it. Everyone has different philosophies and ideas and cures. Uh, None of it seems to work, but nonetheless, um, uh, there is one institution uh, that does have the cure, both now and forever, and that is the true church, the church of the redeemed. Uh, Not in name, obviously, but... uh, factual reality, those that have been redeemed by Christ. If you think about it, that church is remarkably unified and one. Uh, Knows the fixes, knows the cures, because uh, in and of itself, it has been fixed and cured. Uh, And that is the historic reality of uh, the verses before us. Uh, And Paul is going to remind us that the church is one based upon the work of Christ and uh, the resources supplied by the Spirit of God. Um, Again, a quick reminder, the historic context is the coming together of uh, two incredibly diverse ethnicities in the church incredibly diverse because uh, uh, not just their ethnicity, but their traditions, their ways of life, um, their religious backgrounds, and on and on. Um, You would think that's a a recipe for great problems. Remember when uh, my wife and I were... uh, visiting where the uh, Columbia River uh, meets the Pacific Ocean, town of Astoria. 
Uh, it's a very, uh, that meeting place of the river and uh, the Pacific Ocean is a very violent uh, place, um, including lots of shipwrecks and um, I think I heard someone say it was a great barrier ground of Pacific, just shipwrecks all over the place. There's also a special Coast Guard school there uh, to train uh, the young uh, guardsmen, I guess if that's the correct word, just to how to navigate incredibly violent weather and high waves. Uh, but again, in the true church, we don't, we don't have shipwrecks. We don't need special schools. We have everything in the finished work of Christ and in the daily resourcing by the Holy Spirit. Uh, it is true that initially in the book of Acts, uh, certainly in these chapters in Romans, there are some problems, but uh, Paul points us to the solution. It's really the only special school we need or the solutions provided in Scripture. And it's because they come to the understanding of the divine provision and plan for the church. And once that occurs, uh, the church should reckon its uh, incredible unity even in the midst of diversity. Uh, and the, the, the critical fact there is that uh, the divine provision is the key. It's always the key. It's always good to remember, well, what has God done? What did, what did God do to fix this? Uh, and once we understand that, the divine provision, the divine key, the divine fixes, uh, we, we become incredibly unified, regardless of our backgrounds. Uh, and more properly, of course, um, it's good to remember that God fixes hearts because he creates new hearts. And what follows from that is uh, corporate corporate unity in the church. So in verse 7, Paul begins with uh, the reality of our oneness in a divine person, person of Christ. Uh, this is uh, evident in uh, verse 7 where there is a command or imperative. Accept one another. Uh, the tense of the imperative stresses continuous action, not just a one-time event. We're, we're, we're to be continually accepting uh, one another. Uh, if you will, keep on accepting one another. And this is buttressed by two essential factors. Um, the first is uh, the glory of God which is the controlling principle of our lives. So we accept one another for the glory of God. And since that's the controlling rule of life for all of us who are true believers, uh, it makes unity uh, something that is almost a natural event. It should also be the end state of all that we do, the glory of God. In all that you do. If you can't do it for the glory of God, perhaps you need to rethink it. Uh, and that's true for our different professions in life. It's true for our favorite forms of entertainment, leisure, 
uh, relationships, the glory of God. Uh, conversely, I mean, the opposite uh, is quite obvious uh, to use the word twice for emphasis, working uh, disunity in any form does not glorify God and therefore should be disallowed in our lives. Uh, the second factor uh, controlling our unity is the person of Christ affecting our oneness. Uh, the sentence goes this way, accept one another because Christ accepted you. New American Standard makes it almost a comparative clause. I take it as a causal relationship because, because Christ has accepted each one of us. And this too is a controlling principle in our lives. Uh, so how did he accept us? Because we reformed ourselves? Because we're a little better, a little smarter? Uh, because we qualified ourselves? No, that's... Uh, all that is theologically totally incorrect. He accepted us as is. As is. Dirty, rotten, stinking sinners. Based on what? His grace alone. His grace and mercy alone. Uh, and he accepts all men without distinction. Remind you of a Important text in Galatians chapter 3, verse 28. Paul says, There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. So he makes us one. Beautiful illustration of this to me in the life of our Savior. You know, John 4, um, the apostolic company is in Samaria. They come across, which by the way, uh, was not a place any, should I say, normal Jew would go, because they hated the Samaritans. Uh, if you will, the Samaritans were mixed breeds, and they were they were pure. If you want to talk about discrimination, man, that's where it was. But Jesus goes there, and he meets a Samaritan woman. And he witnesses to her. And he explains to her who he is. Uh, she gets off on some conversation about the Messiah and uh, begins to try to teach the Lord. And the Lord just simply says, I am he. And in a dramatic moment, she is cured. And, and we know she is because she goes into town uh, and given her background, she begins to share her faith. Tells the men, come and see. So incredible, uh, incredible illustration of uh, the majesty of what Christ can do. The cure that he brings. Uh, and the reality for us is that if he accepts us in sovereign grace, and that's the only way he does, it's simply the good pleasure of his will, then we must graciously accept one another in light of who he is. And 
that forges the corporate unity of the church. I mean, it, it's a simple paradigm. He accepted me as is. Therefore, I accept others as they are. Uh, and he is the creator of it. And this changes in the text beginning in verse 8 from uh, our unity based upon the divine person to a divine event. And it's very interesting in this text, the context is that the divine event is uh, Gentiles are summoned to praise God, uh, making, making uh, a beautiful expression of the unity of the church. I, you know, think, think about it when we come in, we begin our service. There's a call to worship, but obviously there's as well as a doxology. We praise God. Now, I don't um, observe everybody, but I think everyone is engaged in the doxology, in reciting the triune God. Expression of what? Our, our unity, our oneness, and the praise of God. So a divine event. Formerly, uh, verse 7, it was a person. Now Paul is going to speak to the event. Uh, Again, the immediate context, Jewish Christians who are struggling with accepting Gentiles because they're, eat, they're eating uh, uh, porterhouse steaks that have been uh, offered in sacrifice to idols. Uh, and oftentimes were considered ceremonially unclean. I mean, think about in the book of Acts when Peter goes to the household of a tanner. If there was anybody that was unclean, it was a tanner. Peter goes, that household. Uh, well, Christ, as you know, saves Jews. Uh, and he became a servant and subordinated himself. Paul uses the language here of circumcision, but we know he's speaking to ethnic Jews. He subordinates himself to the elect among the nation of Israel. I would remind you of something that's critically important for unity of the church. Uh, not the physical event, the history of the nation of Israel. It's a spiritual reality that makes us one. Turn with me, if you would, to Philippians uh, chapter 3 and verse 3. And, and Paul says to the church at Philippi, respecting a measure of unity in the divine event, for we are the true circumcision. Not the physical event, but the spiritual event. Who worship God in the, who worship Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. That's de defining the essence and the content of our faith. It makes us true. Notice I begin by saying that there is one institution that is truly one, and that is the true church, because of the true circumcision. Not that we cut ourselves, but that the Spirit of God in divine power cuts away spiritually in our heart 
the flesh and its dominion over us so that we can worship God. We couldn't do that, but he could because of who he is. The divine event. Also uh, referenced in one book over, Colossians uh, chapter 2, verse 11. And in Him, namely Christ, who is the head over all rule and authority, in Him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. That's the divine event. Uh, by the way, if you're not a Christian, it is that event that you alone can hope in uh, that Christ and His Spirit would accomplish. It's, it is to turn you to the reality of what only God can do. Only God can save and only God can forgive sin. We cannot qualify ourselves. Uh, and returning back to Romans chapter 15, Christ did this to confirm the promises given to the fathers, the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph that God promised Abraham to save a remnant from among the nation that would come from within him and to save a massive remnant of all humanity. God says, Abraham, look up the sky. You see a lot of stars up there. Count them. Well, that's, that's a number that will come from Abraham. Uh, and you and I, by the way, are the true sons of Abraham by faith in Christ. Not a physical progeny, it's faith in Christ. Uh, it's difficult to do that in Oklahoma City, but many of you have been to Colorado, been to some mountainous region, sun goes down, it's like incredible, massive numbers of stars. The grace of God not only made the physical creation, but the spiritual creation and gathering all men without distinction. Uh, Abraham, as you know, God made a covenant with him. Uh, that's an expression of the eternal covenant of redemption uh, made in eternity past and consummated by the Son in time and affected by the Spirit of God, the great divine event. Uh, I love the text of 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 1, verse 20. For as many as may be the promises of God, in Him they are yes. All of the promises of God have their yes in Christ. Again, uh, it's a reminder of the essence of the Gospel. God promises to save, but only in Christ. The promises to save are in Christ. Uh, and in Christ alone. They achieve uh, their reality in the work of the Son, who finished the work upon the cross, and then graciously dispatches His Spirit to gather everyone that He purchased upon the cross. So this is uh, telling the Gentiles in the church 
to accept the fulfillment of the promises. Then Paul turns to the Jews. Christ became a servant for the purpose of saving Gentiles to glorify God for His mercy. Look at first part of verse 9. And for the Gentiles to glorify God for His mercy. Confirmation of the promise that goes all the way back to Abraham and really all the way back in eternity past and the decree of God to save. Now it's been set in motion by a person and in this particular context as well by an event. And he saved, again, I have to remind you of this. There's always someone that can be prone to the error that, you know, I, I kind of cleaned myself up. Uh, I went through a personal reformation so that God would save me. No, it's not the way God saves. He saves based upon His mercy alone. His mercy alone. The divine event is His mercy alone. No other reason. Therefore, the Jews must set aside their racial prejudice and discrimination based upon the mercy of God. And from the mercy of God, there's corporate unity in the church because we all recognize we, we deserved none of it, but He gave it solely based upon His eternal kindness and grace. What saves Jews is what saves Gentiles. Christ took no account of the differences and neither should we. The basis of acceptance is the mercy of Christ. Automatically resulting in the corporate unity of the church. And because, uh, because this event was such a radical event, Paul repairs to four Old Testament texts to amplify the beauty and the majesty of it. He was going to quote uh, the Old Testament you know, by application. Another great unifying event here at Grace Bible Church is our commitment to the propositional reality of the Word of God. The inspired Word of God that He gives to us so that we can understand the way of salvation and the way of life. The Word that is alive and powerful. So we don't come to uh, if you will, celebrate national differences. We come together uh, to hear the Scriptures, God's Word. Uh, the first citation uh, in verse 9, second half of verse 9, uh, Therefore I will give praise to thee among the Gentiles, and I will sing to thy name. Uh, so citation from Psalm 1849. It is a psalm of praise uh, from uh, David uh, in which he praises God for the miraculous deliverance from all of his enemies. And the deliverance is attributed to the blessings of God. And David received those blessings and concludes with praise among the nations who need to hear the report of the triumph. Notice the text. Therefore, I will give praise to thee among the Gentiles. So if David, the logic is, if David announces it among the Gentiles, then they too can glorify God 
and praise him for the greater triumph of salvation. And the greater fulfillment of this text is in Christ who saves Gentiles as well. Again, all men without distinction, resulting in the corporate unity of the church. I mean, I would remind, one of my favorite texts is in Revelation chapter 5, verse 10. Christ purchased, purchased on the cross, men from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. Notice, notice the majesty of that text. He didn't purchase all men, but men from. The prepositional phrase is key. Men from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. So the diversity is incredible. But he makes them one by his purchasing act. Therefore, all of us need to accept what he did regardless of our preferences of personality and nature. We don't congregate based upon those reasons. All of us have incredible diversity of personalities. Uh, we have different things that we enjoy. But it's the divine event of what God has done that unites us. Second citation uh, in verse 10. It's from Deuteronomy 32.43. It's from a song of Moses expressing jubilation and merriment at the triumph of the great divine warrior. And Gentiles are invited to participate, meaning that they are included in the divine plan. Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. Think about it in this way. When you and I sing hymns of praise or read psalms of praise, we, we are expressing the reality of these texts. Because there's no greater event expressing the unity of the church than when we praise God. In spite of our differences. Uh, some of you are cowboy fans. Some of you like to ski. Some of you like to fish and hunt. That's not what brings us together. It's a divine event. In this case, the praise of God. And we don't manufacture that. It's the instinctive response of God's people. Because we know uh, and we praise God because of what he did when we did not deserve it any manner or form. So disunity everywhere. I mean, there's a lot of disunity in churches now. Uh, some great denominations are beginning to split over uh, understanding the application of redemption. Uh, praise God in his grace. The true church remains true, expressed in the wonderment and merriment of praise of the beauty and majesty of being saved by grace. Alone. Alone. Third citation, verse 11. It's from Psalm 117. Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Let all the peoples praise Him. 
Think about it. Old Testament. These are Old Testament citations. What are Gentiles doing praising God? Well, they're going to get saved too. Uh, because he purchases Gentiles and he also purchases uh, Jews. Uh, this too is a universal call to praise based upon God's loyal love and faithfulness. And this too confirms that Gentiles are recipients. So we praise God for His loyalty. Think about it in this way. In eternity past, uh, God decrees to give to the Son to purchase His church. His loyalty to the Father is what causes Him to leave His heavenly environment in the eternal praise of the angelic host and to uh, suffer incredible indignity to purchase out of loyalty to His heavenly Father. And secondarily, loyalty for those that the Father gave to Him. One of the greatest, in, in my own mind, it's not the only, it's obvious, but one of the greatest of virtues is loyalty. And Christ is the quintessential reality of loyalty uh, together those whom the Father gave to Him. And His faithfulness to them was faithful. He was faithful to the end. I love the text in the Gospel of John. Uh, before He goes to the cross, it says he loved, he loved His own to the end. Go the distance, regardless of the cost. It's that we, we have come to faith because the Son was loyal to the Father and loyal to the elect and faithful to, the him, to them, even though they were undeserving. That's the incredible reality of it. Uh, all over our, our country, there are parties and institutions that you have to do certain things to get in. To be accepted. Not in the church. Christ simply makes it happen. The Spirit applies it uh, based upon faithfulness and loyalty. His faithfulness, His loyalty, not ours. Lastly, verse 12. Paul quotes from Isaiah 11.10. There shall come the root of Jesse, and he who arises to rule over the Gentiles, in him shall the Gentiles hope. Uh, you know, Isaiah is uh, a, a messianic text. Root of Jesse. Messianic text. Um, Christ is the fulfillment. It's a messianic promise of restoration. I love all, well, I really don't, but tongue-in-cheek, I love all these government programs. They're going to fix this and fix that and do this and do that. Most of them do just the opposite. Hopefully I'm not tipping my hand, but it's just incredible to me. The fixes, true fixes, are on the great Messiah. 
restoration is in it. Oh, we're going to restore peace and unity and restore this and that. Christ makes restoration. And again, what's included in verse 12? The Gentiles. To rule over the Gentiles so that they can hope in Him. Promise fulfilled in Christ. As you know, in the Old Testament, there was a, there was a trickle of Gentiles. Every now and then you come across one. Ruth, Rahab. Well, Rahab was an unlikely one, was she not? That's, all of us were unlikely if you think about it. It's His grace. But they came. How did they come? They came through Israel. Now Christ is soul portal. You mean I don't have to adopt all the traditions and ceremonies? No. Christ is the soul portal into the people of God because He fulfilled all the ceremonial law. He gives us liberty of conscience and the trickle becomes what a flood. Book of Acts. Great fulfillment. Flood. Acts 1.8, to the ends of the earth. Paul goes to the ends of the known world of his day. Universal redemption of all men uh, without distinction. Uh, no, no distinction of tribes, tongue, people, and nation. He saves men from. But he's the sole subject. Uh, and the Spirit of God infusing that uh, in the life of the church. The imputed righteousness of Christ becomes the infused work of the Holy Spirit in grace, making us one. And we, surveying these four great texts and what Christ has done, it's a fitting that we, uh, we conclude in our text this morning, verse 13, with a benediction so that our uh, our oneness is a divine person, our oneness is a divine event, and now our oneness is the divine ability. Uh, it's a great construct. Duty, of course there's duty in the church, but there's also the divine ability infusing us with power to fulfill the duty. It's the way God works. It's all of grace. Verse 13. Now, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. This is a prayer to the God of hope. Uh, all of the promises of men are always going to come up short. Uh, all of us hunger and thirst for hope. And God is the giver. True hope is in Him. Because true restoration is in Him. Now, he is the source. Um, all types of uh, human events to uh, help us to be hopeful. Ultimately, God is the only true, pure, pristine source of hope. Because he alone can affect 
uh, great restoration. And the request is to fill us with joy and peace. To fill us with joy and peace. Uh, reminds us, does it not, of Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So he made peace. And his vertical peace between us and God the Father therefore is the natural basis for our horizontal peace with one another. If God made it, then accept it for what it is. If he saved us on the basis of sovereign grace for no other qualification uh, that we couldn't affect anyway, then we should be at peace with those that have different personalities and likes and dislikes and backgrounds and education and on and on. Because he made peace. And the result is that we abound in hope and joy of what he has done. It's a natural product. Uh, now, uh, notice, uh, notice the resourcing, because this is, uh, to, to me again, another beautiful expression of God's grace. That he resources what he calls us to do by the power of the Holy Spirit. by the power of the Holy Spirit given to all of the sons of God. Uh, I might need to remind you, if perhaps you're a visitor, uh, there, is, there is no second work of grace. There are many churches, state of Oklahoma and all over the United States, all over the world for that matter, that believe that there's a second work of grace. Uh, to me, there is a seamless work of grace. The beauty and the majesty, the union between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Totally seamless. Christ accomplishes redemption, dispatches the Spirit to go apply it. Seamless unity. Christ is the agent, Spirit applies it. Uh, and the application is efficacious, What's the result of that? Our oneness. Corporate unity is a product of a person, of event, uh, here expressed in the beauty of this benediction. Oneness. Now, I understand, practically speaking, there are occasions, uh, you know, disagreements in the church. You know, you know, we have those, Grace Bible Church. Perhaps disagreements in families. But what ultimately brings us together is, well, uh, we're one in Christ. Let's, let's engage in that unity. Uh, let's engage in the praise of God, the greatest expression of our oneness. Always going to be disagreements. Even in the church. It's what we do with them. And what we do with them is subordinate them to the work of the divine person and the divine event and the divine resourcing. And then we say, well, maybe it's not that important. Because he is. And what he has done is. 
So the ultimate uh, answer to disunity in the world is God in the church because we take that message to the world. The ultimate realization, I would remind you, that uh, is the object of our hope uh, is in the eternal estate of the church uh, where we are one again and all corruption eradicated. Our every hope realized. Every hope realized. No one in heaven has any disappointments whatsoever. And all threats removed. Great majesty, when you study the great texts about heaven, um, there will never again be a serpent that enters the garden. He's been eradicated. He's been crushed. Every threat removed, we are wholly pure and full of joy with total satisfaction without interruption or variation in shades of glory. Uh, the great hope of the church. I mean, if you think about it, we're made one. We give expression of our oneness when we praise God. And we're certainly going to be one in heaven. So that defines our conduct, the life of the church, corporate unity. Everywhere there's disunity, except in the true church. I, I truly believe that, except in the true church, in light of uh, Romans 15, 7, 13. Only the church is the basis in Christ. Only the church is resourcing by the Spirit. And in the midst of the disunity, disaffection, uh, arguments, and violence of the world, and all the conflict that's inherent in disunity, now, we praise God because it is ours by grace alone.